Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have a guest host, Anessa Kimball of the University at Laval. Anessa, uh, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Good morning. Um, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been working on so people can remember who you are and, and what you've been contributing to the greater Canadian Defense and Security Network, not only the CDSN, but the greater scene? Thanks. Well, again, thank you for inviting me again. It's been a little over a year since I was here last time. We talked about it was a COVID episode. So, you know, let's uh, <laughs> the pandemic isn't over, but, you know, we're going on to other things, I guess. And so my work in defense and security is broadly around understanding international cooperation. Particularly, I focus on NATO and NORAD, Canada-US, Canada-European security relations. I use rational institutionalist delegation theory approaches and multiple mixed methods. And so right now I have a couple projects going on. One project that kind of drew me into the CDSN is a large data project that I'm working on collecting Canadian defense and security agreements with partners all over the world, as well as American ones. The idea of trying to understand exactly how these agreements are institutionally designed with different partners. Some of this research has pointed to things like, you know, they're pretty much the United States has a, a playbook that it uses. And one of my interests was kind of pulling this open when it came to NATO enlargement, how the U.S. collaborates as a defense and security underwriter for certain states and how that affected member perceptions of credibility when it came to new states entering after the end of the Cold War. And so I have one set of research that's basically on looking at these informal agreements. And so what's interesting about these is that they're, you know, they involve less stakeholders. They don't go before national legislatures. And so it's really kind of the underground, one might say, nuts and bolts of what, what makes cooperation happen. And I became attracted to this because the NORAD system, which we know is, you know, a quite complicated bilateral, binational command with Canada and the United States is actually totally designed using these informal mechanisms. And so that was kind of my interest as I had always been a NATO scholar. When I uh, moved to Canada 16 years ago, I kind of started looking at all of these other interesting Canada-U.S. cooperation institutions. And so I started putting this all together, you know, around certain aspects of geostrategy and international relations. And so that's kind of how I got lured in to the CDSN, thinking through that, thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And then I also work on NATO burden sharing. And so as we know, Canada, as an original member of NATO, what draws me to working on that is essentially the idea, well, a couple of things. One thing is that there's a lot of research there, but the research is one might say very siloed. 
So there's a good amount of research that's kind of comparing a small number of states. There's research that's kind of taking a period or a mission and looking at how burdens are shared in that. But there's no research that kind of looks at, for example, all members in NATO over time or how particularly NATO enlargement helped to shift burdens. And so that's kind of where my research comes in. And one of the ways through which NATO has shifted burdens within the alliance but two partners separately is through using the centers of excellence since 2005. And so actually there's no burden sharing research that looks at centers of excellence, what these things look like. And which is quite surprising given the fact is going to open the 29th NATO center of excellence in the next few years. And Canada is only a member participant in five centers. And so to me, that was a kind of an interesting framework because I think Canada can learn a lot about how to build an efficient and effective center of excellence. And so that led me into basically the, the third acts of research for now, which I'm doing for CDSN on the climate security and NATO node, where we're going to be looking at basically how can Canada learn from other centers of excellence and how can Canada take that learning to create and build a solid center of excellence that's going to draw lots of partners. Because one of the other things is that these centers of excellence, they live essentially because the partners come to them and collaborate. And so how can Canada do that? That's one of the next things that uh, you know I'm looking at in research with Alex Moens. Excellent. And that's been a major part of our new uh, MINES project, our, our grant from the Department of National Defense. So you're speaking about NATO and burden sharing, all kinds of good stuff. So let's talk about the hot story of the week. It looks like the next NATO summit will be, or even before the NATO summit, it looks like next month, just a couple of weeks that Finland and Sweden are going to announce their interest in joining NATO. What's your take on, on this particular event? And do you think that this will improve NATO or harm NATO? What, what do you think of as the consequences of, of Finland and Sweden joining the Atlantic Alliance? Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is an interesting turn of event in some senses, because on the one hand, we have heard policy pundits and other folks talk about maybe we could do a Finlandization of the Ukraine, you know, based on this whole idea that Finland had kind of deftly developed this idea where when you're a small neighboring country to a more powerful country, you basically create this relationship where you kind of you don't oppose their foreign policy, but you're allowed to keep your own foreign policy because you have a kind of a strong political system, right? And so one of the things upon which Finlandization actually rests is that you have a strong functioning democratic system. And so that would be one of the first places where I would point out the whole idea of bringing that to Ukraine is a little far-fetched. But when it comes to Finland and Sweden, I think it's, it's important to note that Finland shares over 1,300 kilometers of border with Russia. This is about the same amount of border that the Ukraine shares. Finland is a European partner to NATO already. It is integrated into NATO centers of excellence, and it probably won't have to complete the standard long membership action plan because a lot of that is related to being a solid democracy, having a strong economy, which Finland already has. And so it can probably benefit to a faster path to membership. I would say also the fact that it's a member of COEs on cyber defense and strategic communications can be quite important here because it can help use the NATO communications establishment to try and kind of 
pave the way for membership, for example, reminding, you know, Russia that Finland has already collaborated with NATO on a number of things. And so, you know, I think that Finland was there at ISAF. Finland was there in K4. Not only that, when you think about what Finland can bring to NATO, it brings very impressive capabilities when it comes to monitoring and intel. There was very little that happened with Russian troop movements that the Finlands were unaware of for example. And so I would also say that Finland would be positive in the especially for Canada in the sense that Finland is present in the Arctic and it could, you know, enhance NATO's presence in the Arctic without upsetting Russia more or less. And this would be good for Canada because of course, you know, you know Canada would prefer to have non-Russian presences in the Arctic and a Finnish presence would, you know, basically be consistent with Canada's, you know, national interests in the area. And so I think that this is a good thing. Where it's risky of course, is the fact that the the period between when the Finns and the Swedes might openly and publicly agree to join that they want to join NATO and the period in which all of the accession agreements are ratified at all 29 or 30 other NATO national parliaments will be dangerous. Right. It's going to be a period where Russia will probably want to do some different types of threatening moves. Russia will definitely test the Finnish airspace. We know that they've been doing this. And so it is a move that carries a bit of risk. And so it'll be interesting to see how this is communicated to Russia, in a sense, to try to not provoke or escalate Russian actions near Finland and Sweden. So basically, it's mostly all good, but there'll be the window of of opportunity for the Russians to mess around with things in between the announcement and when they're formally members. We have seen some discussion of the United States and others making some sort of either guarantees or developing some kind of agreements to to cover Finland and Sweden in, in the interim because we anticipate the Russians trying to take advantage of this window. Do you think those things have any credibility? Do you think the Russians would see those things as as being Article 5-ish enough that they, they understand that they can't really go to war with Finland or Sweden without major consequences in that window of time? Well, I think the Americans are going to be a little bit hesitant to actually put, for instance, their own airplanes up there in the space to defend. I think we're far more likely to see American technologies of, you know, surveillance and stuff like that be in the game, maybe air denial. I mean, in my mind, I, I don't see the U.S. It's not that the U.S. doesn't want to, you know, defend Finland or Sweden. The risks would be rather high. I mean, we know that the Russians are doing, you know, practically, um, you know, every several days incursions into the airspace. It would just simply be be risky if the Americans did something directly. Now, I think if, you know, NATO does something or if, you know, this this whole idea of the EU having a stronger defense and security presence, if there would be something that could be done. We could talk about that later. Right. But right now, my sense is that if there's going to be some sort of protection or offers to Finland and Sweden in this kind of transition period, this window of opportunity, it's going to be the type of stuff, very little U.S. troop human related will be there, more or less. Well, I was thinking more just in terms of assurances that if, if, yeah. they, were, if they were attacked, then, then they would get that, that would lead to an American response. If the U.S. would give that assurance, I'm not sure that the U.S. would, you know. It would be nice, but, you know, if the U.S. is going to give assurances like that, you better believe South Korea is picking up the phone. <laughs> well, South Korea already has that that assurance. That Not really. That, yes, it does. They, it we, does not have an Article 5 assurance. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. When you look when you talk to somebody like me, <laughs> all right, you're the I've read the agreements. You know, I've read the agreements with South Korea. It, there's nothing in there that's like an Article 5. 
Really? I mean, the best that they have is a, a commitment that's like an Article 4 commitment. I mean, I think that that's one of the, the most misunderstood things about how the U.S. has not protected Japan and South Korea. Those are not Article 5 commitments. I mean, the most they have is something that's like an Article 4. Um, but Article 5, no. Mm, well, they have something better than Article 5 in some ways. Lots of American hostages in both Japan and, and Korea. And so in practical terms, if somebody were to attack Japan or Korea and kill lots of Americans, that would lead to the same kind, that would lead to a pretty credible response on the part of the United States in a way that an Article 5 commitment in the absence of American tripwires in Finland or Sweden, I would I would still find the, the American commitment to Japan or, and Korea more credible than that to the new members of NATO, unless there are potential dead Americans involved. Well, I mean, also one of the important things to note is that, you know, we've now placed about 5,000 troops in the tripwire there in, in enhanced forward presence. And yes. that's NATO. Those are NATO troops. Um, we're not counting all of the other bilateral troops that have now poured in. And so, you know, in those four NATO countries that border Ukraine, you know, this is between those four NATO countries, it's about a thousand kilometers of border, a little mm -hmm. less than that. And so what that looks like for Ukraine is, you know, when you look at all of Ukraine's borders, it's actually 63% of them are open or exposed one way or another. And so what that means is that, you know, the territorial sovereignty and the existential security situation in Ukraine is basically going to continue until we, there's going to be some sort of agreement or some sort of ceasefire that we can develop. And I think right now, again, just as would Russia see a U.S. you know commitment to assure Sweden and Finland as credible? I mean, again, likewise, should NATO view any sort of Russian promise, you know, to do things or reduce anything, any of its actions in Ukraine as credible? We've already seen they can't credibly maintain the, the humanitarian corridors. But you raise something that's really interesting here, which is that there are a lot of countries that border Ukraine, and I think the one that's the most nervous is not you know Latvia, Lithuania, but Moldova. You know, yes, partly because they're not a member of NATO and partly because their Russian troops already have been occupying part of Moldova for 30 years in Transnistria. Exactly. Uh, and so I guess the question I have is membership uh, for Sweden and, and Finland are, is an easy, it's relatively easy. They'll, they'll, they'll ask and they'll become members. But Ukraine raised the question and Moldova reminds us of this question of how do we try to assure the security countries that are not members of either major multilateral arrangements like NATO or what you would consider not quite as binding bilateral arrangements as what Korea, South Korea and Japan has. Moldova has none of those things. Georgia has none of those things. Ukraine has none of those things. How do we keep countries out of NATO but try to not provide a green light to the Russians to attack them like some would argue we've done with Ukraine and Moldova? I mean, some people would argue that the the mechanism that mechanism already exists. It's the Partnership for Peace. It's where those mm -hmm. you know those states can collaborate with NATO, one off or smaller groupings. Those countries. I mean, what we have seen, unfortunately, is that Georgia was a country that had been active, had been participating. Well, you know, once you know, once the issues started with Russia, predictably, essentially, its security concerns turned inwards, and it started participating less. It became less active because you know security. Kind of starts at home. And so I think that that's one challenge is that you have states that are facing kind of internal security issues and then, you know, kind of asking them, OK, well, you, it would be better for you and better for everyone if you started, you know, hanging out in the collective defense club or, you know, participating in certain of these collective defense things. And these are simply countries that just don't have the capacity. That's one thing. Now, Moldova has created a type of one could say package neutrality in this situation where this is kind of a one off thing 
with Russia. But I mean, when you look at the way in which Russia is trying to attack the territory of Ukraine, you see a bit that there's a strategy that involves basically taking that southern swath right along the Black Sea and going all the way to Transnistria. Right. And trying to kind of create that all together. And of course, this would be this would be tragic for the Ukraine in some senses. I mean, loss of access to the Black Sea would be huge. Also, it would be the, you know, the the dismantling of country that, you know, now for 30 some years, the West has said this country exists in its, you know, integrity. And if, you know, Russia is is allowed to basically take it apart slice by slice, I think it says a lot about the lack of power of international law, more or less. Well, what we're seeing in in Ukraine is not so much international law restraining the Russians, but the Ukrainians (laughs) restraining the Russians. I think that the latest Russian announcements that their their new mission is to build a land bridge to Transnistria is is just the most obvious of bluffs because they can't control, you know, they, they can't really control the territory that they're standing upon, it's unlikely that they'll be able to extend their control to all the way to Transnistria. And so I guess that raises an indirect way in which international law can matter, which is not through Russia being prevented by the letter of the law, but by the country's reactions to the violation of international law. We've seen so much support, so much material support, not just words, but substance, you know, guns, Mm -hmm. literally, as well as money to Ukraine from most Western countries that we've seen them almost engage now bidding where Estonia say, well, we're sending, you know, 50 of these. And some other country goes, well, well, you're sending 50, we're going to send 100. And then Canada Mm -hmm. says, sure, we'll send four howitzers. Is that the way international law works in some ways, which is not so much somebody reads the rules and says, oh, we'll live by the rules, but that the rules when they're violated get enforced. Can we see that process playing out now, even though the reality is that most of the rest of the world is standing aside and not doing anything? I mean, there are a couple of things to bring into this one. Obviously, Zelensky was able to kind of mobilize a commitment from the G7, right? This commitment is a huge financial commitment. We're talking about like $50 trillion. And so if you take this, and that's why I was talking about this with my my graduate student, Christian Picard, um, who obviously we talk a lot about NATO and burden sharing. And so we were talking a little bit about how what this looks like. And one of the interesting things is that we're seeing Japan over investing why do we think Japan is over investing? Well, it's because it's trying to get commitments just in case things jump in its own neighborhood. You know, like Japan is actually like it's invested an insane amount of money, almost no military equipment, but money. Of course, money is the most fungible, the best asset, one might say. The other problem, we would say it's really it's the, it's the human factor. The military is only so large in the Ukraine. The civilians that are left fighting are only so large. We are watching civilian evacuations of certain cities can simply pour arms and all of those in. But there's a human factor that you have to consider as well. And when it comes to the balance of the demography, you know, Russia simply has more soldiers to throw into the machine of the conflict than Ukraine does. And it's going to be a bit of a you know, who's going to reach the, the breaking point first in some senses when it comes to the human factor. And so that's why we're seeing Zelensky billionaires. He wants billionaires to buy him jets. But, you know, what's he going to do once he has hundreds of jets? I don't believe he's got hundreds of pilots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do understand that there's a population difference between the two, but I'm pretty sure that only one side is going to have mutinies and it's not going to be the Ukrainians. The softer side of this war has demonstrated that, you know, you can have 
you can have overwhelming amounts of tanks and other other weapon systems. But if you don't have good leadership, and if you haven't you know, haven't trained your soldiers well, and if you don't have a cause to fight for, you, you may lose a lot of battles along the way. And, and so we've really seen how just gaming out the war based on technology is deceptive. That those folks who knew and were familiar with, well, the quality of Ukrainian leadership, they've done a whole lot of work the past eight years to, to renovate, reform the military, to instill civilian control of the military, to promote people who have been not just well-networked and, and having good relationships with the people on top, but actually were performing well in difficult conditions because we forget that, or we didn't really notice that. The Ukrainians have been at war with the Russians for eight years, so they've got plenty of experienced military leaders. And sometimes you promote the better leaders, and sometimes you promote the people who are more handy for your political system. And in Ukraine, they've been doing the former and the latter. One of the problems we had in of our training mission in Iraq was that the Iraqi government was trained was promoting people who were you know tied to the government, not people who were doing the stuff well. So our training wasn't really as as effective in Iraq as it has been in Ukraine, as well as the fact that the Ukrainians are just simply more effective overall anyway, which mm -hmm. gets to a different issue, which is touches on some of the stuff you were talking about earlier, which is how do you feel about Canada's contributions to all this? Are we doing as much as we can? Are there things that we should be doing more? Are the fact that we keep on giving less stuff than others just shows that we are a country that has less investment in our own military? How do you assess the Canadian contribution? Mm -hmm. to Ukraine's defense these days? I mean, I think on one hand, you know, Canada and other NATO members, partners are, are using a bit this event to kind of empty their stocks. Um, we've seen, for example, the Czech Republic offering up, you know, kind of old air defense weapons based on the idea that they're going to get better, newer, you know, more sleek things from the United States almost immediately, which happened. And so I think there's a there's a bit of that going on. Is Canada giving enough? Well, Canada has, has given lots of money that for sure, when you kind of look at the, you know, the, the financial side, comparatively, Canada has has played its part there. When it comes to military equipment, I think that that's, a, you know, we both know that that's a little bit of an irony because Canada's own procurement system, as we know, we'll say is not the lightest, nor the fastest, nor the most efficient. And so there's the sense that the more that Canada gives, the less that it might have for its own needs. And so I think that there's a little bit of that going on. On the other hand, Trudeau faces some quite important pressure to do something and to be credible here, to be a competent leader, not just, you know, and some of this is because Canada, you know, speaks three of the languages that are going across this, you know, the, the, the negotiation tables right now with Christia Freeland, who speaks Russian fluently. So it can listen to three different conversations and collect mm -hmm. that information in ways that other states simply can't. I think that that's important. Canada has a relationship with France that it can use to a, a better effect here. And the other part, like I said, it's important for Trudeau because the U Ukrainian diaspora in Canada is located in electoral districts that are competitive oh. for him. He needs to keep those those electors on his side. And when we talk about what this means, you know, we the, the number is like 1.3 million. In fact, of that 1.3 million of this Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, there's actually 77,000 people that speak Ukrainian. And it's important to note that actually in Manitoba, 3.5% of the population speaks Ukrainian. That's how many Ukrainians there are relative yeah. to the rest of Manitoba. And so I think that this is important as well because it speaks to the fact that, you know, it's not a small marginal voice. And Zelensky has managed as well to kind of tap into that, what we might say, kind of the normative arguments of protecting democracy, protecting liberty, you know, those types of things that Canadians 
who are, one might even say, like fiercely democratic. (laughs) This really speaks to them in a lot of ways. And so I think that that also helps Trudeau to kind of make his case when he goes through and tries to, you know, get resources. I mean, also notable, a conflict in which Canada is uh, investing a lot of resources, investing a lot of military arms. It's going to go hand in hand in helping his requests, at least from Strong, Secure and Engaged, to have larger budgets. Mm -hmm. It's going to be easier for him to kind of make that argument to say, like, we've done our part contributing to the collective defense, but now we need to be able to rearm ourselves to, to protect ourselves. And I think if Trudeau is able to deftly manage the information. This could also be a way in which finances for NORAD modernization can Mm -hmm. advance and that project can advance. Just using the kind of geostrategic aspect of what some of the implications of this conflict. Yeah, I know there are fears within D&D and CAF that in the aftermath of the pandemic, that folks would be looking to the military for a place to cut a budget to deal with the budget deficits. But I think Putin has done the Canadian military a favor because I don't think it's politically possible for any of the major parties to push for cuts. And will definitely has already been used by Minister Anand and others to justify spending more money on. That will be the very expensive, but much discussed, the modernization of the Northern warning systems. Exactly. Um, I do want to move on to another topic, which is, we're taping this on a Tuesday, on the, uh, the day before on Monday, Minister Anand uh, spoke at the uh, unveiling, I guess is the right term, I don't know what the right term is, for when they put out the report by the defense minister's advisory group mm-hmm. on systemic racism. And they issued a, a pretty thorough report on the state of racism in the Canadian forces. What's your take on this report? It was, uh, to be clear, it was one that was requested by Anand's predecessor, Minister Saijan, in response to white supremacists being identified within the Kenyan Armed Forces. So you've read the report or skimmed it. I've, I've skimmed it. What's, what's your take? As a data-oriented person, of course, I was extremely excited to actually see the data there all disaggregated along the groups because me, someone who works with EDI, this is one of the hardest things to do. And in fact, I was lucky enough to be able to mobilize the CDSN grants mandates around equity and and diversity accounting to, for example, force the hand of my university to start collecting diversity data on uh, demographic data on who attends our conferences, who presents at our conferences. And so I think that that's one of the ways stakeholders like us can kind of push the box forward. And so there's a a couple of interesting things, you know, I took away from it. Obviously, pretty clear that there is underrepresentation of women and underrepresentation of racialized individuals. As somebody who identifies you know, as LGBTQ, I was consistently annoyed by the continual, we don't have data on that. We don't have data on that. And this is because Canadian defense has already recognized through the purge project, right, that there were different behaviors that forced LGBTQ people out of the military. And now their kind of their lack of collecting the demographic data on that speaks to a bit of an insult, I think, towards that community. Like, we want to do better, but we don't respect you enough to try to collect the data on you, which I think is, again, it's this two-voice thing that I find quite lacking. The other part I found ironic, one might say, is to the devaluation of people with disabilities in the report. At one point, they talk about how when it comes to CAF recruitment, you know, obviously when it comes to certain disabilities, they can't recruit. On the other hand, when it comes to D&D civilian, I was shocked to see how 
underrepresented people with disabilities are, given the fact that there are large numbers of members of CAF that are former CAF members that might have had injuries in a war zone, for example. How are these people not in the D&D in any way? You know what I mean? Just the logic would show that there is a rather large population of probably people that could be contributing that have disability, one of these things, you know? And so I thought that that was also a little bit of a shocker, one might say, for an institution that's now trying to embrace diversity to see that, you know, when it comes to disabilities, they basically still close the door on it. For example, civilian disabled staff, how, how is there so little? That's my question. When it got to page 30 and it was about the women, I just looked at that one figure and I said, what happens at the level of sergeant warrant officer to push out diversity? Like you see the slope there is about a 5% bleed out by increase in rank. That alone needs a micro study. How is it that when you go through those four ranks, you literally bleed out five and it's it's the women and it's the the minorities. Something is going on there, systematic. Yeah, I, I do definitely think the, the stats they had showed some patterns that point to critical challenges of retention and promotion. It's not just about recruitment because we see the numbers dip at certain stages. You raised the issue of LGBTQ. And I thought one of the most striking things in the document was basically calling for changing and who can be a chaplain within the military because there are religions that are hostile to LGBTQ or history of uh, being hot, you know, of religions being tied into anti-Indigenous behavior in the past. Well, that, I think that's pretty striking because that suggests no, no Catholics, if we want to name names and no evangelicals or very few evangelicals can become members, you know, chaplains within the I mean, no Protestants of... either there, because I mean, let's be fair, both the Catholics and the Protestants ran the residential schools. Okay. That's a good point. So nobody was... escapes that. And as somebody that in my younger life, I was forced to undergo conversion therapy. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the page with that. I'm fine with that. Well, I'm not saying I'm opposed to it. I was just saying that, you know, the document itself had some pretty striking recommendations. And so, it was, you know, some places it was softer than others and some places it yeah. was pretty striking. Exactly. I agree with you. Some parts were quite striking and some parts I found overwhelmingly soft. <laughs> so for instance, one of the things that I found striking was, uh, and this was in the document, not in the press conference, because I think the press conference had something a little bit different. But in the document, it's clear that, you know, they're saying that we need to do a better job of like, pre- preventing white supremacists from joining the military and identifying white supremacists in general who are in the military. There was no language, as far as I can tell, about how to accelerate the removal of white supremacists within the military. One of the challenges the past few years is that we've had people come out as being proud boys or whatever, and then they stick around for a while. And it's that perception that there's not swift removal of these people from the military that might cause people of color, other other targets of white supremacists to not join the military because they see that these folks aren't removed quickly. And Mm -hmm. so I was really struck that there wasn't any real discussion of, of how we must move faster on this. So that way, you know, know, what's the point of identifying white supremacists in the CAF if you don't actually get rid of them? I mean, you know, I think a lot of it is white protectionism, right? Overwhelmingly, it is extremely clear that the CAF is white. And so honestly, you know, it's a cultural protectionism thing. You know, they go as far as saying, we just want to make the environment so tough for these people that they self withdraw. That's not this uh, same type of crap that these institutions have been saying for decades. You know, when someone like me, like me gets upset about uh, equity and diversion and all of that, and everybody around my institution kind of pats me on the head and said, well, it's a slow culture change. And I'm kind of 16 years in and getting the same pats on the head. And I'm like, I'm the same person. This culture has not changed. And I think that that's, you know, they're not getting that. Well, I think one of the most striking things in the document was the focus on how the, many reviews there have been 
you, you've talked mm-hmm. about how you know, the culture hasn't changed over the past how many years. But one striking part of the report was that there, there have been so many reports and there hasn't really been any collection of assessments of how those reports have been implemented. Speaking of your data, you know, concern for data, you'd think that there'd be data about, okay, you know, this report set these goals, how many of these goals are met? This report said these, you know, these were the targets, how many of these targets are met, on and on and on. But all we do with these reports, and at least in the past, has been to write these reports. And then it's been pretty clear that there hasn't been implementation because one part of implementation is coming up with metrics for whether you're implementing it or not. Exactly. The reverse of this is like the common complaint that like when you're looking for diversity, diversity, it it doesn't exist. And so that's how we have all of these white men, right? It's kind of like they're fighting with this, you know, the fact that the military itself is a white colonial racist institution. It's borrowed from Europe, right? It's uh, elite hierarchical. Most militaries, although in a perfect democracy, we want them to be civilian controlled. You and I both know that the reality of that is (laughs) very different. This report has kind of an expected level of kind of uh, self-protectionism. For me, when it came to the section on transgender members that were interviewed, I found that hugely disappointing. For example, they say that the transgender members have to provide psychological proof of their commitment to transgender gender surgery before they can be even offered it. Again, these are huge, enormous institutional level obstacles that people should not face just for wanting to be their authentic selves. I know people who have personally transitioned and have talked about, particularly in the military, it is extremely traumatizing to go back and have to re-explain and re-explain and re-explain. And as a non-binary person who has had uh, very personal private surgeries, I share that trauma of having to go back and re-explain and re-explain to the institution a hundred times every time. And for particular LGBTQ members of the military, another thing to recognize is that these people, they have to come out every two years. Every time it's a new process. Every time you go to a base, every time you go somewhere and not every place is a safe place for these individuals. And it's really clear that the military has very little conception of what that means or how how that affects the person as an individual and how they would be you know, seen. The whole idea should be consulted 9.2, consult to develop more adequate training and education for the CAF medical branch when it comes to transgender individuals. Well, one of the large things that CAF needs to realize is that its, its medical section is also dominated by white men. The very men that serve as the gatekeepers of gender are the ones that kind of are the approvers of whether or not these people can become their authentic selves. Again, there is a disconnect there. And again, we're not talking about a small amount of the population when, you know, 22 to 25 percent of young people these days pl- place themselves as LGBTA to allies or being in this group. You know, and it's not just transgender surgeries. CAF is just, you know, it's closing the door on, you know, it, it treats every case as like it's a one-off problem. That's not mm-hmm. accommodation. Mm-hmm. You, this is a personnel issue. And and the funny thing is, is that you and I both had sort of the same reaction when we looked at the back of the document. In the back of the document, it had lists all the people they talked to. And one of them was Chief of Personnel Hayden, Hayden Edmondson, who has been since suspended from the military as he's uh, being investigated for sexual assault that he allegedly committed a few decades ago. Hayden Edmondson had earned the nickname Mulligan Man for having caught a break by being able to keep on going with his career despite facing an accusation or more than one accusation like this. And it's striking that, you know, we now have acting chief of personnel, Major General Liz Bonneau, 
who is our guest today on our guest interview that Stephanie Bonlack interviewed a, a couple weeks ago. And so she's in this position precisely because we, our personnel situation was so screwed up that we were putting into the very highest ranks in the personnel command of people who should never have been promoted to the level of admiral in the first place. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think that it speaks to the whole idea of the culture that protects itself, that he was, like you say, he earned, he earned earned the nickname, right? Mulligan man. It's disheartening for people who have spent years, for example, researchers that have spent years trying to, to sort this all out just to see these type of people continue to be able to circulate in the ranks. I also think one of the things this report was very clear when you read it, it was it was definitely written by somebody that was cisgendered because the whole section on 11 parental allowances in the Canadian forces that just like it reeks of everything that's hetero heteronormative. This whole thing is, uh, you know, mother, father, mother, father, mother, father, because, mm -hmm. you know, apparently that is the only appropriate relationship. I mean, you know, they spent two full pages talking about this. And I just read it and I was like, wow, I guess you're just you're one or the other. And it's like men, ha men must take the parental leave. I, I mean, yeah, 11.2. Are we advancing? You know, how are we letting the how are we advancing the reconciliation with victims of racism, discriminations and biases in, in the forces on a on a daily basis? How do these people how, are we letting them testify their truths? Again, this is a support. The, this was the defense advisory group on systemic racism. And intersectionality is a thing where you, you have to think about all these things interacting at the same time. Perhaps there will be a report on systemic homophobia within the Canadian forces. Uh, I don't know if that's in play or not, but I do think that we need to think about all these things at the same time. Anessa, thanks for spending our, your time today with us. We're now going to move on to the interview that Stephanie taped with Major General Lise Bagnol, who is trying to address some of these issues and, and people can listen to her to this interview to see where things stand. The culture change discussion has often focused up a lot more on gender and on sexual misconduct and not so much on sexual identity or on uh, race. The report this week obviously shifts the conversation a little bit more towards uh, racism, but obviously a lot of these things are very much related. White supremacists are usually misogynists and, and homophobes. And so there are a lot of things we can do that might actually hit multiple targets at the same time, but this is obviously not a, a one-time thing. I just think that for the data person that you are, what you really want them to do is to actually record, you know, how much do they implement the recommendations they've made, even if the recommendations they've made aren't sufficient. We should at least be keeping track of, of whether people are following through on these various reports. Absolutely. Absolutely. As the report says, there's 258 recommendations already out there and we haven't seen any report cards on any of them. And so maybe that's the next step is, you know, a project to figure out how good or how bad or how much we've they've kept track with the, the promises of the recommendations that they were going to do. You know, what what's the proof that they've been working or is, or has this been, you know, uh, kind of chasing ghosts, one might say. Well, thanks again and look forward to hearing about your latest wave of work in episodes to come. Yes, thank you very much. It was always great to talk with you about everything from Russia to NATO to what's going on in the CAF. Uh, as always, battle rhythm does not disappoint. Thank you, Steve. Sure. Today, our featured interview is with Major General Lise Bourgon, who is the acting chief of military personnel. She stepped into the role shortly after being appointed as deputy commander 
Military Personnel Command. And this is her second time on Battle Rhythm. General Bourgon was on last year when she was the Canadian Visiting Defense Fellow at the Queen's Centre for International and Defense Policy. Before that, General Bourgon was Chief of Operations at the Canadian Joint Operational Command and Director General Operations at the Strategic Joint Staff. As always, you can find the full bio in the show notes. Major General Bourgon, welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Your old crew at Queen's says hello. And uh, last time you were on, you were right here in Kingston on a fellowship, and you spent the bulk of your time reading and writing on military personnel issues. But I bet your day-to-day -day routine now is quite different. Now you're acting chief of military personnel, and from what we've seen on the news, it's been a very busy year. So first up, you have to bring us up to speed as time has just flown by since your last visit on the show. Hey, thanks, Stephanie, and thanks to Steve for having me again here. It's a great honor. And indeed, as you said, the last year has been incredible. Uh, it's flown by. You know, the, the fellowship that I did under you as my director was really focused on diversity, inclusion, and culture change, and really specifically looking at women in the CAF. What I really discovered was that the key to success in the culture change was really to shift from integration to inclusion. But as I was looking in, at the CAF, I quickly realized that when we talk about inclusivity and culture change, there's really no magic solution and that we need to look at the entire spectrum of our organization. So that pan-CAF changes were required to address the structural and also their cultural inequalities facing women, visible minority groups, persons with disabilities, Indigenous, and the members of the LGBTQ2 plus communities. So when I got offered that position as deputy commander of military personal command, I jumped on it because many, many of the changes that I had identified in my research were really within the CMP portfolio. And if I can, like for the listeners who might not be familiar with the military organization, so the portfolio of CMP is, is very large. It includes recruiting, the basic training, such as the recruit school in Saint-Jean, the academic institution, like the two military colleges, the one in Saint-Jean and the one in RMC. And it also has the Defense Academy in Toronto, the military health system and all the medical personnel, as well as everything related to the human resource policy, including pay and benefits, career management, transition. So really, when you look at it, it's truly cradle to grave, literally. So I knew that in that role as the deputy, I could really, really influence a lot of change. So when I arrived last year in May, after I left Kingston very, very quickly, I sat down with the team and we looked at each of the 11 different organizations that form CMP and what everyone could do to really dismantle those barriers and really remove the cultural inequalities that women in diverse group face. Okay. So when we look again, you know, by history and practice, the military was designed by men for men. So we, we need, and we had, and we still need to change that in order to include everyone. So in CMP, we have produced a great campaign plan full of initiatives, some that we've already implemented and many more that in progress, but it's, it's super interesting and we're moving. As you said, many initiatives in 2021 was the year where all eyes seem to be on the need for culture change within the armed forces. With Ukraine, the headlines have shifted the focus quite a bit, but I think it's safe to say that institutionally, 
cultural change is still a top priority for the Canadian Armed Forces. And once again, this was reflected in the budget. Based on what we've heard, can you tell us where this money will go? How does one fund something like culture change? Yeah, well, as you just said, culture change is a very large endeavor, especially for any military organization. And I always compare it to how do we eat an elephant? Well, you do it one bite at a time. And that's exactly what we're doing. So during our gap analysis, we had identified that women's health was an area that could be improved, but we did not have the fund for that project as it really, really required a large investment. So the women's health and diversity initiative will be centered on a core team that will really coordinate the Canadian Force Health Services effort across four lines of effort. So prevention, care, quality, and performance, and finally, research and engagement. So this action plan or this work plan is going to be like a, a modular with a number of proposed components, such as uh, better screening for women, pre and postnatal support, and will also evolve as the findings of the core team develop. There's another piece to this also, and it's uh, the CF Morale Welfare Services, which is really the organization that provides the CAF, our physical fitness support. And they will be launching a research program, and they'll be developing specific uh, physical fitness program for women. First, to enable the training and the operational success. Uh, second, to really reduce overall injuries. And finally, to contribute to the overall wellness of women. So specifically, they're developing physical training regimen for women pre-basic training, as we know that there is a significant delta in physical strength between men and women. And this delta really affects women's performance and also causes a lot of more injuries. Uh, there's going to be other programs that would look at uh, occupational physical fitness requirements, really to ensure that women are better supported for the specific task that they will be asked to perform. You know, I'm, I'm a helicopter pilot and now I have a bad neck. Well, mm. we could have forecasted like 25 years ago that as a helicopter pilot and a woman, I would have a bad neck. So so there's no reason that any women joining the military and getting their wings now could not be given with a specific training program so that they don't get a bad neck like I do. And finally, they're going to be looking at prenatal, postpartum and post-menopause physical fitness support. So that will be specifically developed for our needs. Okay, because at the end of the day, on the health piece, women and men require different needs. And finally, the budget will also looking at formal mentoring and coaching program, which both of those programs have been identified as important tools for culture change to continue the progress. Excellent. And uh, funny you should mention mentorship because I'll, I'll note here and I'll plug Dr. Tom Sato's work, but last year our CDSN postdoc was focused on mentorship of, of women in the military. So I'm really glad that those initiatives are coming to fruition. And I think a lot of what you're saying too reminds me of the broader piece of women, peace and security when it comes to identifying barriers for women's participation in the military and understanding the differentiated needs of women and men. I know last time we talked, you were the women peace and security champion for the Canadian Armed Forces. And I know that you've held on to this role. So I see some really nice complementarities between your role as acting chief of military personnel and also your role as CAF champion for women, peace and security. 
Yeah, no, it, you're, you're exactly right, especially as we focus a little bit more now uh, internally with the CAF trying to look at our action plan and we're in the renewal of uh, the new national action plan. So that's going to be very interesting on, on what will come up on that new national action plan. But yes, you know that women, peace and security is to ensure that we have those women available to deploy and conduct operation, but also the NGOs and the structure for the entire spectrum to be covered. And so based on everything that you've just mentioned, it's clear that you play a big part in leading and overseeing change tied to culture, but also you know, the broader reconstitution plan. But last year, a new L1 organization was created, the Chief of Professional Conduct and Culture. It's an organization that's led by Lieutenant General Jenny Carignan. And not to get too deep into the weeds, but can you paint the picture of how coordination happens between CPCC and other organizations like yours that have such a big part to play in this journey of culture change? Yeah, indeed. So, uh, you know, although CPCC has been stood up to lead and coordinate the culture change in the CAF, culture change is really everyone's responsibility. So, you know, the whole of the defense team, when we look at D&D and CAF, are all involved in culture change, and each and every one of the services are also working on various initiatives across the board to ensure that we continue to create that workplace that is welcoming, inclusive, safe and respectful for every member of our team. So as I say, uh, you know, CPCC might be the team captain, but the entire team is engaged. And in CMP, we are working very closely with CPCC and with every military and civilian leader to ensure that our efforts are aligned and that our culture change is really done in full coordination and collaboration. Therefore, again, ensuring the readiness, the resilience, and once more, the operational effectiveness across the CAF. So, you know, we meet every week. I have a meeting every week with CPCC, every two weeks with General Carignan. We talk about initiatives, we talk about progress, who's doing what, how we can support each other because our portfolio are very similar and they align on the culture change. I would discuss resource and prioritization. I mean, we all wish that we could do more and faster, but it's uh, it's a challenging space with limited resources. Okay, well, I'm glad you raised uh, the point about challenges because this is where I'm, I'm going next because everyone knows that change is hard and that it's particularly difficult to please everyone when changing the culture of an organization. And on the one hand, the military is a rigidly hierarchical organization that prides itself on operational effectiveness. So, you know, it could be uniquely suited to implement change. And on the other hand, it's a large bureaucracy and military culture is tied to people's sense of professional identity. So it'd be hard to imagine this process just going smoothly without encountering any resistance. So I have to ask from your perspective, what has been the most challenging aspect of culture change to date? I think there's two answers I will give you on this one. So the first one is as part of our analysis, we've identified many initiatives that we need to implement. And like I said earlier, we're going as fast as we can with the resource that we have. But the reality is that the people that are in CMP are also the same team that is working on our reconstitution effort. And you've mentioned before and you've heard of the hollow force problem that we have right now and how we need to fix this and soon. So we have to do a, a balanced approach here. 
Like we can't focus only on culture at the expense of reconstitution, as we will never achieve the right capabilities to maintain an operational calf. But at the same time, we also understand that culture change is essential to re our reconstitution effort because attraction, recruitment, and retention are directly linked to the people feeling appreciated and, and, and welcome. So we, we get it that we have to do both of them at the same time, but it's such a sweet balance with the resource that we have. And the other challenge I think that I want to discuss is, is still with that mentality is convince that culture change will make us stronger as a military forces and not weaker. And that diversity and inclusion will ultimately bring an operational advantage uh, that will ensure that CAF is operationally relevant and more successful in operation at home and abroad. You know, some people don't realize that the Canadian population has changed, but the CAF as an entity has not. Like stats clearly reflect this. 71% of the CAF workforce are still white male, although they only represent about 39% of the Canadian civilian workforce. So today, you know, women, the minority groups, the indigenous and the LGBTQ members, they continue to be underrepresented within our organization. And that needs to change. That needs to change if we want to attract and retain the recruits of tomorrow, if we want to retain our employee of choice status, and if we want to compete against civilian companies, because if we don't change, the CAF will simply atrophy and fail. And that's the harsh reality, but that is the reality. So the bottom line is that diversity enhances readiness and in turn, our operational effectiveness. But sadly, you know, not everyone gets it. So we still need to convince people that culture change is a plus and it's operationally relevant. And if I may just ask for a follow-up, how do you do that in the day-to-day? -day? Can you give us examples of how you attempt to convince people how you get your message out there? I assume it's a constant effort. Yeah, it's a constant effort, internal and external also. It's about perspective and the differences are not a weakness and people don't always get that, you know, at that different perspective that we bring to the table and you need to convince people to see differently. And I think it's pretty cool when we're talking about the new changes that we're going to do to our dress manual, which the new dress instruction will be a lot more inclusive. But this is going to be the first time that we're going to visually change what a soldier, a sailor, or an aviator is going to look like. Because at the end of the day, you know, your skills as an operator, your skills as a supporter, they don't depend on the length and the color of your hair. So that new dress instruction is really going to change a bit what the calf looks like, but will be a lot more inclusive. Mm, uh, and then the, the beard, the ponytail and braid was already a, a big change when it came to what's allowable in terms of, of different styles. I was speaking to a, an Italian infantry officer a few days ago and they were saying that, you know, they're not there yet. Uh, women are still only allowed to wear the, the bun. So I know those changes are, are incremental, but now it seems that they're even more ambitious when it comes to uh, 
that address instructions or regulations. Well, I think we're going to be the first nation, but all the other nations are looking because they're all feeling the same pool. I mean, our members are clear. They want to be able to be themselves in uniform. And Canada is not the only country that is feeling this. So I think our allies are looking at what we're doing. And I'm betting $5 that it's not going to take a lot of years for a lot of other countries to follow suit. Okay. And for my next question, and I know Steve feels the same way. I want to ask about how you go about change while waiting for the Arbor recommendations, because we keep on bringing this up and we're, of course, you know, looking forward to, to seeing what she's come up with. But uh, former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbor is leading an independent external comprehensive review into sexual misconduct in the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces. It's a large scope of work. And we're all really impatient to see her final recommendations. But I can also see this being a challenge for the kind of work that you do. And so I'd like to ask how you hedge your bets, so to speak, between the urgent need to get things done now and show progress and the realization that some of Arbo's recommendations might be surprising or require some significant adjustments from what's been done to date. That's a good question. But at the end of the day, we, we were not going to wait on Madame Arbor's reports before moving on a few key initiatives. So, you know, CPCC is prioritizing efforts that will have an impact on our culture change in the short term, while also planning for changes in the long term. And of course, as you said, all of which will be informed by, by Madame Arbor's upcoming independent external comprehensive review final report, which is expected by the end of May. So mm. from, from a CMP perspective, you know, the, the team continue to examine those barriers and how we can close the gap. And I mean, from a CMP, we're responsible for over 600 policy instruments. So looking at career progression, performance reviews, promotion, education and training, family support, health program. So really, we're, we're going to look at all of those policies and try to, to bring a gender-based analysis plus. We're really going to try to remove the gaps and ensure that everyone is included. Like, how do we prioritize? We're listening to the CAF members and we are consulting with the different defense advisory group. So it's a mix, a bit of initiatives, which some of can be implemented relatively easy, while others are more complicated. But in the end, they're also going to have a bigger impact. And I think I have to say that I'm super proud of the team for the work on inclusive leadership. And we just released a new policy instruction and an awesome, awesome aide memoir that clearly describes the behaviors expected from CAF member. So really clear actions that are linked to our evaluated competency. And they're super easy to understand and emulate. And of course, these expectations uh, will be formally assessed during our performance appraisal. And in turn, this will enable us to provide feedback, measure, and ultimately reward inclusive initiatives and behavior. So that was, in my opinion, that was a huge step because it's like a snowball that's on the top of the hill that is starting to go down because inclusive leadership will emulate and will recognize more inclusive leadership, which will then be in turn promoted. And then I think in 10 years, the, the CAF is going to be a completely different organization because of that inclusive leadership direction. Yeah, well, I think that one of those last points there was key on changing the professional incentive structure. I think focusing on that really is important for, for change and tying 
change to promotion and advancement and making sure that you know you you take a look at those professional incentive structures really really important so i'm glad that's a big area of focus and yes we'll we'll just have to be a bit more patient and, and wait until next month yeah, thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> what Abbuch uh, will, be, will be recommending. You were doing a press conference a couple of weeks ago. I know Steve attended and we had a chance to discuss it briefly on, on the podcast. But since you're here, I want to ask you a bit more about that. You were announcing the latest initiatives to make the Canadian Armed Forces more gender inclusive. And you've referenced some of these in our conversation thus far. But this announcement also revealed that the Canadian military is still falling short on its targets when it comes to recruiting members from underrepresented groups. And so circling back to the research that you did while at Queen's, where you were really, really looking at that target of 25.1% of women in the force, you know, how will the Canadian Armed Forces get there? And when do you think that is going to be? I know that there was a set deadline for it. I'm, I'm guessing it's pushed a bit to the right, but you know, on the whole, like, how are we doing with, with these targets? And are you fairly optimistic about the Canadian Armed Forces ability to get there? Yeah, well, you know, the 25.1 gender objective is still valid, okay? But the reality is that it will be impossible to achieve it by 2026. And there's a, a few reasons for this. You know, first, the, the impact of COVID on our recruiting and our training system has really created a, a large gap, and it will take us a while to recover. Second, if we're honest, you know, the sexual misconduct crisis that we've seen in the last 18 to 24 months has really not helped attracting women uh, to the CAF. Our image and our reputation has been affected. So we need to change this image for women and diverse group to want to join the CAF. And honestly, that's why all of us are working so diligently on culture change, like making real changes every day. So again, like we need to ensure that every individual are provided that same opportunities of success in an environment that is welcome, that is safe, inclusive, and respectful. So in the end, we will not reach the 25.1 by 2026, but we will reach it one day. I promise this. So we have to keep working hard to dismantle those barriers and eliminate those structural and those social inequities amongst our rank. And it's one step at a time. So I can't give you a time, but we're working on it every day and it, it will get better. All right. Well, we'll keep on tracking those numbers, but but I think it's it's good to not put a set deadline on it because organizational change takes time. And I remember you explaining to me how that figure of 25.1% came about, but it's still, you know, a number that is very far removed from, from today's reality. So I think not giving up on the target, but allowing a bit more time for the, the realization of those objectives is, is sound. It's always, I think, healthy to say, okay, we missed this deadline, but how can we make this a reality on a longer time frame? It, it makes a lot of sense. It's been great to update this discussion with you, uh, General Bourgon, from last year. There's a lot that's changed. And although, you know, we certainly miss having you here in Kingston, we were you know, hoping to have you in the city for a while longer. I think that your move to this important position was just fantastic, given all of the energy, the intellectual energy that you put throughout the fellowship to study these issues. So I'm really happy there's a close connection between your research efforts and your professional priorities in this role. I know it's also a demanding 
position. So I hope that in your battle rhythm, you're still having some time for the things that you love. I know that when you were in, in Kingston, you were swimming in the lake and training for a triathlon. So do you still have some time for all of that? Oh, that's my sanity. I go to the gym every day at seven o'clock in the morning, seven to eight thirty. If I cannot hit the gym, I'm uh, my team will tell you that I'm I'm grumpy. So they are making sure that I get that hour to hit the gym because they're long days. But you know, every day, usually every day when I get home, there's always positive in the day, and the difference that we are making is exceptional. So it's it's fun. Well, thanks for sharing those latest updates on Battle Rhythm. And today is another long day. Uh, it's past 8.30 p.m. on a Tuesday. So thank you for making the time to speak with me today. And please take care and, and good luck with this very challenging work ahead. We look forward to having you perhaps back on a third time on Battle Rhythm, um, but really grateful that uh, you were able to come back on the show. Thank you so much, General Bocon. Thank you, Stephanie. For today's R&R segment, I've got three different TV shows that I really enjoy. Binged Russian Doll with my wife. It's the second season. They take the show in a completely different direction, and it's just terrific. I, I'm not going to say anything more about it because I don't want to spoil it, but it was just a, a fun, fast watch. Uh, we're in the middle of Outcasts, which is an Am uh, Amazon Prime show. based on, uh, It's a British show about a group of people from all walks of life who've committed some sort of crimes. So they're doing community service. And it, it's about them interacting with each other and their own lives and all the rest of it. And it's both comedic and, and dramatic, and it's just really engaging. And finally, Barry is back. Barry uh, stars Bill Hader and Henry Winkler and some other folks. And it's about Hitman who becomes an acting student, and then chaos ensues. And so uh, Barry, that is the Bill Hader character, is now facing a struggle with the emotional toll this has taken on him and all the rest. But it's also really funny. And I can't recommend enough. It's on HBO Max and might be on Crave. Anyway, so those are my recommendations for this week. Be well. See you soon.